Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains podcast with me, Chris. And again, we are back with John, who is going to talk us through climbing Denali, the tallest mountain in North America. It's a super fascinating podcast. He talks about a couple of different things. He compares summer with winter because he's been lucky enough or hardworking enough, as we discuss, to climb in both seasons. It's a great, great discussion. If you're thinking and you're listening, you're thinking, I've climbed a mountain, I want to talk about it on the podcast, <laughs> then feel free to email me on btmtravelpod at gmail.com. Be sure to check out his website, Mountain Expeditions. I'll put it in the link and uh, the description below. But otherwise, let's just jump straight into it. So, John, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. It's been several days since we uploaded the interview, uh, but it has been several moments since we hit stop record and started this one. So I assume you're still fine. I'm great, yeah. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> so uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, this one is uh, quite a nice one for me. We're going to talk about Denali today. And this is something on my bucket list for sure. It's one of those things that is in black and white. I'm going to do it at some point. Um, as opposed to one of those ones where, you know, it might be nice to do. And you are hardworking enough, to rephrase it based on the interview uh, last time, um, hardworking enough to have done it twice. So what's it like? It's really, really good. <clears throat> and it's, it's proper um what i mean by that is that um unlike a lot of the big mountains in the himalayas and that sort of thing it's much more self-sufficient so the vast majority of people that climb denali sign up to one of the six concessionary companies that are allowed to operate within the denali national park um but you are still expected to carry all of your stuff and pull a sled with all the other stuff you need in it and your share of the group kit and the group food and everything like that. <clears throat> Whereas often with these, you know, other Himalayan stuff, you would have porters or um, mules to assist getting loads up and down the mountain from the minute you land on day one to getting to the summit and coming back down, it's all under your own power and you have to pull or carry all your own kit. And unlike many other mountains, also from minute one to the summit and back, or as far as you get on the mountain and back, you're on a glacier the whole time. So there's not, you can't just like go for a wander. You can't do that. You can't really like, go to you know go and stay in a tea lodge or you're in a tent on a glacier and it is real for the whole expedition so it's a, it's big and our crevasse is something that we're going to be looking out for at this first stage too or is it not that sort Ab of glacier no absolutely yeah mm. um the first time i went to denali was with my friend nick the two of us and the season usually runs from mid-may through till I believe around early August-ish. <clears throat> and I had a look and I decided we were going to, well, we decided we'd go in right at the end of May. So we'd give the first few teams a chance to kind of go in and break a trail, if you like, um, and sort of establish themselves on the mountain. And then we'd come in before it got too busy. And it worked a treat. But um, very much 
uh, yeah, from where the planes land is quite um, is a little a little side glacier off the Cahiltner. So the Cahiltner is the main huge glacier that runs down, and a little side fork which um, I can't remember the exact name of. But that doesn't have too many crevasses or too much broken ground. It's it's okay. But once you leave there, everywhere you move, you're roped up. And on that main Cahiltner Glacier that stretches for miles up to Camp 1 and up to Camp 2 before you turn a corner and head up further, um, yeah, there's some of the, the world's largest gaping crevasses uh, that you could imagine. Uh, and... Early in the season, like in May uh, and early June, hopefully they'll be quite well filled in. And certainly the snow bridges across the top will be still quite thick and, and quite well frozen in. Uh, you know, that first time we went uh, with, my, with my friend Nick, we, we went in uh, and basically kind of just took the, the most obvious straight line through the glacier. There's no like markers or posts. Um, often there's a trail left in from the group ahead. Uh, they sometimes mark particularly um dangerous crevasses but otherwise you know we just took a straight line through and and 14 days later when we came back through the same section of uh glacier we had to weave in and out and up and round and down to get through this maze of crevasses that had opened up in two weeks when previously we'd taken a straight line through the middle of them um, which ha had been safe to do so at that point but uh, you know, those two weeks had warmed up and um, the daytime temperatures had caused the snow bridges to slump and in some cases collapse. So there was a, it's a you know, we had to navigate and meander our way through that we hadn't had to do two weeks before. So, yeah, the, uh, and on various points on the mountain, particularly where the glacier rolls, the, the glacier rolls over what's probably rock underneath and causes the 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 glacier to fracture and open because it's a convex slope. Um, that's where you get some real monsters. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned there that uh, when you first went, that was 14 days. Uh, I think uh, we'll talk about comparing summer to the winter season uh, in a moment, but is 14 days, is that typical for, for the amount of time you're going to be taking to climb Denali? I think that would be seen as being reasonably quick um most trips i think summit around or, or the trip would be around 18 to 22 days long <coughs> okay. um as an independent team we had no means of resupplying or anything because it was just a two of us so we actually took enough food and supplies for 25 days so that if one of the legendary notorious storms from uh, from Alaska came in, we'd be able to sit it out and then have enough uh, gas for cooking and food to eat to hopefully have a go at reaching the summit. But as it was, we, we had some quite good weather and we uh, felt quite good and we managed to get up and down in, well, the way down we can talk about later, but we pulled off a monster day and... Um, managed to sneak out of the, the mountain the day before a huge storm hit and, and nobody got in or out of the mountain for six days after that. So wow. we were pre pretty pleased to have got out. But just to uh, mention, to get to base camp 
is a, a flight. You take an an amazing flight from uh, Talkeetna, um, and a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, Alaskan village. It's so cool. So much history. Uh, it's very unique. Um, but you take a small twin prop uh, plane straight out into the the national park. It's just incredible. Uh, and then, yeah, down into the mountains and then you land uh, on the glacier and the plane's been adapted with little skis on, on the wheels. But yeah, you, you fly in and land on a, on a glacier. It's, it's just amazing. That's going to be one of my uh, questions. Yeah, you start the trip with a huge smile on your face, just thinking, "Oh my god, that was like the best thing ever!" Um, Yeah, yeah, and then then it flies away, and reality sets in pretty quick, and you have to adapt very quickly to where you are. Yeah, and you know, similar hike mountains uh, like Kilimanjaro, you can pretty much hike up them. What kind of technical skill are we going to need to go to Denali? Should I be thinking about going to Scotland or to the Alpines to do a bit of training first? Um, I, I would strongly recommend anybody uh, going to Denali to have a wealth of experience. Um, definitely some altitude experience, undoubtedly. You'd really want to have got to 6,000 metres before. But more than that, you need to have really good um, winter camping skills. Every single night you're camping on a glacier and every single night the temperatures will drop substantially. And if you've got no experience in sleeping systems and how you look after yourself and your personal admin and cooking and melting snow to create water and how things freeze and unfreeze, there's so much involved with... um, camping in winter but not only camping in winter but on the side of a big mountain at altitude that it would be too much if you hadn't any experience so scotland yes alpine yes uh, like european alps and um other high altitude mountains it's like a trilogy that i use with a lot of my clients you know I, I, often we go to somewhere that's dry and warm and we learn some skills whether that's campcraft or mountaineering skills or, or technical climbing skills, we learn them in a friendly, warm, summery environment. And then we take those and apply them to somewhere like Scotland, where there is no altitude involved. And almost always you can get to a pub within a day. So that's absolutely good to know <laughs> and you, you take those skills and you apply them to winter and you 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 winterize them and you add add and tweak so that you then become accustomed to doing everything in gloves and wearing six layers and not getting your kit wet and having everything organized but in a winter environment and then apply that to altitude and then come back round you know so come back into the summer and upskill and learn some new things or refine what you do and then round and round you go. So, uh, you know, Denali is, is a big, big mountain. And uh, as far as I'm aware, certainly for one company I was looking at recently, of, of the six that are allowed to operate on that mountain, they will all ask for a comprehensive resume of what you've done before. 
Um, and they, they will quite happily say, you, you haven't quite got enough experience at the moment. Um, yeah. consider, consider X or Y. Um, or yes, you know, what you've done would be, would be great. So sure, you could rock up and go and climb Kilimanjaro and that's only 300 meters shorter, but it's a completely different ball game. There's barely- A completely different latitude to start with. Yeah, I mean, they're barely comparable, really. Um, So yeah, as I said right at the beginning, it's a really proper big expedition and it's very involved. You can't be a passenger um, and you can't sort of do your bit. So we're going to be using ropes, ice axes, crampons to get up some areas. Um, you'll be roped up as a team traveling almost completely the whole time. Um, there's a section above Camp 4, which is at 14,400 feet, um, which is almost like a sort of advanced base camp it becomes a bit of a mini village because uh, it's like the the launching platform for summit bids there is a high camp in between but it's not big and it's quite exposed but above camp four to join the main ridge there's quite a steep sustained often very icy slope where they fix some lines for about 800 feet so during that period you're most likely to come off the rope that's linking you together with your teammates and actually use some climbing techniques with a jumar and a few other bits and bobs to ascend the fixed lines independently so it's almost like a fairly more serious via ferrata (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah no you know you're absolutely right when when there are when there are fixed lines in place you treat them very similar to via ferrata you, you are attached at all times. The whole time you're on it, you are attached by a minimum of one uh, lanyard, one arm, if you like. But the majority of the time, you'll have two. So that when you get to an anchor and you need to bypass that anchor, you can take one off, bypass it, clip it back in, and then remove the second one. So at all times, you're clipped in. Perfect. So let's start getting into the experience. So we're going we're gonna to be there with our plenty of experience uh, for about three weeks. Day yep. one, we're setting off across the glacier, thinking how could it possibly get better than this? Um, uh, where are we going to then first? Uh, well, often when you fly in, there's um, quite a bit of admin to do. So you often spend the first night at base camp. Okay. Uh, it kind of depends how much sorting and admin you manage to achieve in Talkeetna. Um, whether you can head straight off or you need to sort of sort your kit out. But often there's a huge explosion of kit and sharing of um, white gas, the fuel you use to cook and all the food. Anyway, but once you're ready to set out of base camp and head up the mountain, you actually, against all, <laughs> against the odds, you go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> so, which, which is a real treat to start with. But, there's a really good reason why that 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 hill is called Heartbreak Hill, um, and that's obviously for when you're returning, you know, pretty battered and bruised and broken after you know, putting some effort in up high. I'm just thinking that the last thing you have to do is then ascend this the length of slope back to base camp. Um, so yeah, we we sort of strapped our sleds on, tied in with the rope. We were happy. We had our sort of sun protection 
going, which is really important because um, you get an unprecedented amount of exposure to the glare and the sun. And if you don't manage that really carefully, it, it will ruin your trip immediately. So sun from above, but even almost more importantly, sun from below reflecting off the white snow in the glacier will will frazzle your face. So like we, we were using really high factor sun cream all the time and wherever possible, covering up as well um, to, to not get too much exposure to the UV. And yes, straight down takes, uh, depending on your speed, an hour or so to <clears throat> go down this sort of side tongue of the glacier and out into the open of the main huge Cahiltner Glacier. And you basically just swing uh, a, a right as you come down on, you know, the huge Cahiltner Glacier runs right to left as you're, you're coming away from base camp. And once you get down and onto it, you turn right and up you go for, well, the next four or five days, you're going to be just working your way up. Um, depending on a number of factors, the way you at attack or the way you logistically manage this mountain is by doing a load of mini, like micro expeditions. So to get from base camp to camp one, for example, you may go down on the glacier. Uh, there's a, there are loads of ways you can do it, but like a very simple way to explain this would be to come down from the base camp, go to camp one, drop some kit, and then retrace your steps back to base camp and rest. And then the next day, take the rest of your kit, because you have quite a lot of it, take the rest of it back down the trail where you've already been the day before, over to camp one, and then set up camp one and move in. So it, it took you sort of two journeys to get all your kit there. This is great for a number of reasons, but mainly to help acclimatize and so that you don't have to carry and pull enormous weights of kit. Because as I said at the beginning, you've got everything you need, all your food, your gas, and you have to carry, you're not allowed to leave anything on the mountain, um, including uh, if you need to go to the toilet for a number two. Okay. So once you're, once you're established at camp one, you begin the same routine and these same rotations. Um, and when I've been there, because we're not in a structured uh, commercial expedition, we've had a plan, but been very flexible and sort of changed it with how we're feeling and what the weather's doing. But for example, from camp one to camp two, what we did was we, it's a bit of a hill at the back of camp one and then it sort of undulating, but we took a, we took the sleds and a rucksack and went as far as we could almost to camp two, not quite. And then we sort of dug a hole, put our kit in it, marked it, GPSed it, and then went back. And then the next day, much lighter, we took the camp down, back up the terrain, straight past the cache. We ignored it. We call them caches. Ignored it up to camp two, settled in and stayed the night. <clears throat> and then the next day we did a back carry. So we dropped down to the cache, picked it up, and back up to camp two. So a reasonably short day, you know, drop down, pick it up, come back up. So kind of semi-rest day. So that um, that process of sort of carry and drop, build a cache, come back, and then sort of then go up to camp, establish a new camp, 
and then the next day back carry collect your cash and come back up to where you are now established is really common and some theme of that sort of three four day process to get you and all of your stuff up to the next camp is how you sort of slowly leapfrog up from camp one to camp two camp three and then get up to camp four which as i said before is like your launching pad for making your summit bid perfect so it's like a frog frog leap sort of two steps forward one step back method. absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. two steps forward one step back and it just means that you, you don't have to carry enormous loads and enormous weights that would break you and we're deploying the sort of tried and tested high altitude tactic of sort of climbing high and then sleeping low. So, you know, during those carry days, we push up high into new altitudes. So it will feel hard and it will hurt and you might have headaches, that sort of thing. And then you drop your kit and then go back to a camp that's already established a, a lower altitude where you're going to feel better and you can rest and relax in a lower altitude before then pushing higher again. So it works okay. really well. Yeah. So, and you said you do that all the way to the camp four. Yeah. So I'm actually unfamiliar with the amount of camps that you get on Denali. So is camp four the one just before the summit push? No, camp five would be the one before the summit push. The camp four is at 40,000 yep. feet. Uh, I guess it's 4,200 meters maybe. Um, and it's on a big flat plateau. It's yeah. reasonably, reasonably safe from crevasses for quite a big area. So it's a place where people quite freely move around. Um, it's a big shelf, big flat shelf. Again, reasonably safe from object objective dangers. Um, and you could spend quite a long time here and, and make it quite comfortable. Yeah, it can make it quite comfortable. Perfect. So before we start pushing it further up the mountain, is there anything else we need to know about that? those first few days of, of frog leaping ourselves? Um, yeah, I mean... The lower days are equally as important as the upper days because you need to really look after yourselves every day. But the more you look after yourself during these lower days, you know, it's going to be a, you know, a good week to two weeks um, doing these mini rotations to get established at Camp 4. Um, the more you look after yourself and the better your admin and getting into these little routines, it just means that then... When you're at camp four and you're thinking about pushing up, you're in a good place. You're in a good physical condition. You're mentally, you're in a good place. You're happy. You don't have sunburn and you haven't been super dehydrated and you've been really looking after your body and, and your sort of personal health and your personal admin. And you're just in a really good order and ready for responding to when the weather allows or when, you know, when your team is ready to go for the summit. Perfect. And I'm guessing by camp four, you're already looking at incredible views over at least one side of Alaska. To be honest, the views are totally mind blowing from halfway, well, from the flight in. You know, yeah. From the flight in, you can see the whole mountain range. And then from when you land, um, the view in every direction is amazing. And of course, as you go up and you get higher, you can then see over the top of your very close surrounding mountains 
to the ones behind and the ones behind. Yeah. There's a particular key point between Camp 3 and Camp 4 um, called Windy Corner. So okay. out of Camp 3, I believe, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm correct on this, but uh, out of Camp 3, you come up and there's a, there's a slope called Motorcycle Hill, and then it flattens out for a while and goes up and up and up. It's quite a big day, Camp 3 to Camp 4. And then there's a distinctive corner that you turn. It's you know, you can't miss it, you know, what I mean? um, <laughs> where your your view and your aspect completely changes. And it's it is very often windy. The wind gets accelerated around the corner. <laughs> However, that first time that I got the opportunity to go with Nick, we had no wind ever on windy corner. So I thought it was just a farce. But uh, I've subsequently learned that yes, it is very windy. <clears throat> um, but as you come around that corner it's a real wow moment because um, because of the aspect you've been climbing, you've been shut in a little bit from being able to see far and to be able to see, you know, a huge vista. But as you come around Windy Corner, the entire Denali National Park opens up before you and it is a truly amazing view. It really is. Um, unfortunately, it's not the... The most perfect place to sort of stop and then take it all in. It is often quite windy on that corner, and the wind has really makes you feel cold in these environments. So <clears throat> you often need to carry on a little way. Where, but actually, the, the ground can be quite complex there, and it, a, a fall would be catastrophic. So, you, and it can be quite icy because the wind scours the ground. So it's not a place to sort of um, switch off and relax too much. But once you're through it and back onto sort of the main part of the glacier a bit further on, you still have those views. And that's sort of a time to sort of sit and have a drink and a bite to eat, you know, apply some more sun cream and just sit there and go, wow, like, wow, that is amazing. It's just a sea of white peaks as far as you can see. Yeah. It just happens that Mount Hunter and Mount Forica and Denali, the three of them, stand noticeably higher than the rest of them so it's quite it's quite a unique view it's really special yeah for sure and that's that's going to be the time where you're starting to think i can i can do this yeah i think so <clears throat> i guess once you feel like you are higher than most of the things around you which by that point you'd be getting close to being at the same height as the summit of most of the other things you can see apart from Hunter and Forica, then yeah, I guess it, it does start to feel like you're getting pretty high. Um, when you're looking down on things, yeah, yeah, you're starting to feel like, you know, you've been on the hill for well over a week, 10 days, possibly 10, 12 days. That's quite a long period of time. And you know that when you get into camp four, that's, that's a real, point on the mountain a real tick if you like a place to get established and somewhere you can relax a little bit you can switch off and sort of have a few days rest uh, but there's still a lot of work to be done between camp four and camp five to get camp five established but it's definitely a real um uh mark a, a real bench point in the trip yeah. to, to aim for initially perfect so we're at Camp 4, and like you just said, you've mentioned there's a lot of work to get to Camp 5. So 
what kind of things are we looking at doing at this point? So between camp four and five, we're still going to um, uh, apply a sort of rotation tactic again. Um, so out of camp four, it's quite steep, and then it's usually quite broken terrain up to the bottom of this big face. Um, which, as I said, depending on how it's formed, when we were there, it was about 800, 900 feet of steep, sort of up to 60, 65 degree, quite uniform slope, a little bit like the Lotsey face um, on the Everest Lotsey route. And it's often reasonably icy and hard. So that's, you know, you're then reaching close to 5,000 meters when you reach the top of this slope. So you're getting into altitudes where things do start to feel pretty hard, especially when you're on steep ice and it's a bit of an all body workout using a Jumar on a fixed line and, you know, using your crampons properly on, on steep ice. So once you reach the ridge, it's then absolutely fantastic. I mean, up to camp four, there hasn't been too much technicality, a little bit around windy corner perhaps, but really the technicalities start from sort of camp four upwards. And then once you're on the ridge, it's fantastic. You'll be roped up with your team. Uh, some of it, some of the ridge is sort of wafer thin snow crests where a real head for height um, is required because the exposure can be quite overwhelming. You know, big drops off either side. Uh, and there's a big, huge rock, uh, which I believe is called uh, Washburn's Thumb, I think. I'm happy to be corrected on that. Uh, sort of halfway along that ridge. And that's often a place which people are aiming for that day um, where they can then cache some of their kit and equipment and food for when they you know, go to high camp. Uh, and then you'll retrace that and descend the fixed lines and back to your safe haven at camp four. Um, I think that's that then until you then push through for the summit. And what you would do is, you know, when you're ready, You'd, re you'd start early, climb up from camp four, up onto the fixed lines, up the head wall, across the ridge. Again, potentially just bypassing that equipment, depending on what you've left and how you're doing it. Over to camp five, establish camp. Depending on what you've done, you may quickly backtrack to Washburn's Thumb, collect your kit and back up because it wouldn't be that far. To, to go back along the ridge or you may do that the next day you know depending on how many days and nights you are planning to stay at camp five and camp five is amazing it's it's again it's reasonably open so it's a little bit exposed to wind and that that sort of thing but you're getting really high and obviously it's the last camp that you plan to use pre-summit so it all starts to feel pretty real and you know the the feeling that the next day that you go out of your tent into the unknown and into the uncertainty, that's your day when you're hoping to reach the summit of this mountain that you've just spent, you know, three weeks of your life getting to this position. So, yeah, there's a whole uh, tent full of emotions, uncertainty and worries and anxieties. Um, but, you know, hopefully you can you're going to draw on the experiences that you've had before and the trust in your climbing partners and your guides, and you're going to bounce off each other 
and, and have a really successful and safe day when you leave the next day. But it, those pre-summit times in the tent are, are fascinating. People busying themselves with all sorts of admin, making sure they're hydrated and getting everything in order, getting their snacks ready and their sun cream and making sure everything's in the right pocket, you know, double checking where you've packed everything. And then finding time to rest and relax as well. And hopefully being able to push any anxieties to one side, knowing that you have done everything that you can possibly do to put things in your favour and that you are as ready and prepared as you're ever going to be. So we're ready for the summit. Everything's been put away. And if, uh, if we know you, if you've listened to the interview that we did before, uh, all of your padmen is in complete and good order and you're being bothered. Um, it's summer day. What are we doing? Other than the obvious. <clears throat> well, the first thing we're doing is uh, waking up and preparing to leave and there's um, quite a lot of things to do during this period um, and one of the most important things is to make sure you're really well hydrated. I can't stress enough from all my experience uh, operating at high altitude just how important being hydrated is. So that means you know the first thing I do when I wake up is the stove is on <clears throat> Um, and hopefully I've slept, which means I didn't really drink that much during the night. But hopefully I need a wee, so go for a wee. I've got my pee bottle, so I use that. Um, and then uh, get the stove on and start having some hot brews, tea, coffee, you know, whatever it is, some nice warm hot brews. And start setting about this routine that I've honed and got to perfection over the last while. And, you know, the, one of the first things I do is... Um, if I haven't already got them on, which I probably haven't, but I might have them inside my sleeping bag, is to get my uh, fresh summit socks on, which are brand new and fresh for this day. <laughs> put those on. They're dry and fresh and fluffy. Uh, and then put my inner boots on. So high altitude mountaineering boots would have two boots, basically an inner boot and a, and a main outer boot. So that inner boot, well, the both parts of that boot would be inside my tent all night. Um, but the, the inners, they, they'll be in my sleeping bag, keeping warm and dry. And I'll get those on my feet um, and I'll start layering up. If I haven't got all my layers on, I'll begin slowly layering up. At the same time, my water's probably boiled, so I'll be having a brew. And it's sometimes difficult to know what you want to eat. So sometimes I just have biscuits or a couple of bars. If I can have some porridge, something more, with a bit more substance in it, great. But often at that time, you don't really want to eat, but I always encourage you to try and eat what you can. But yeah, hydrating is key. I probably soon need another wee, so I'll have another wee. Um, <laughs> and you know, getting everything, you know, the night before I would have chased my batteries in my head torch and I'll have everything ready. So I'm just almost subconsciously go through the motions of preparation. And obviously you'd have been given a time or you'd, you'd have agreed a time and I'm working towards that. And I don't want to get ready too quickly. I don't want to be outside my tent starting to get cold, you know, hopping around whilst everybody else is still in their tent because I've got ready too quickly. So, you know, always keeping an eye on the time and likewise trying not to be late as well. So, you know, you've got everything ready, harnesses on inside the tent. 
big boots can go on, zipping everything up, making sure all your layers are tucked in and that you're tip-top ready and prepared for heading outside. Um, and then, yeah, the last thing you'll do before actually leaving would be to put your crampons on and uh, tie on to the rope um, and maybe one last wee before you go. A really, really cool top tip is if you can leave some water in your stove or in, a, in another uh, bottle of some sort for when you get down, you're inevitably going to be A, really dehydrated and B, run out of water, which is fine. <clears throat> you have to weigh out the balance between carrying too much water because it's heavy and the right amount. But if you've drunk it all, that's fine. And then if you turn up at camp and then have to dig to the deepest parts of your psyche to be bothered to then go and get some snow, to then put it in the stove and melt it, that, you know, that's hard, but you will do it. But if you just already have some water there ready to drink, that is a golden ticket to a fast recovery. Anyway, uh, and, then, and then you'll be out into the dark into the night although in alaska it, it doesn't go dark in the summer so you may not depending if you go in early may or june july it will be 24-hour daylight which is pretty good actually it's, mm. it, it makes life a lot easier um and then you'll be out from from high camp you're straight out and across into the thing called the autobahn i believe which is like a long rising traverse out of camp, across a huge face. You know, it's, it's straight up uh, and across and up, right across this face to like a broad ridge. Um, and I guess you just need to, again, um, go back to the Yukon that we talked about in our first podcast, not firing off and suddenly getting hot and sweaty. Because you're going to be a bit fresher, you've had a rest, you're hydrated and you're really raring to go. Um, but you just need to make sure you rein that in and just set off really steady. You can always speed up like a little bit. You know, if you're just a little bit cold, you can always speed up a little bit. Um, but you don't want to like shoot your gun too fast. So set off steady and into the into the night or the early morning. Um, and often very quickly, then you'll need to make some minor adjustments. You know, maybe you need to undo some zips or lose a layer. Um, and whilst I always advocate to try not to stop too often, there's nothing worse than being too, too hot or too, too cold. So there's, of, there's lots of minor things you can do. You can open zips, you can drop hoods, you can remove gloves or hats to dissipate some additional heat. And in reverse, you can add hoods and um, zip things up to keep heat in. But if you've done all those things and you still quite can't manage your temperature, for example, then during those first, that first half an hour, first hour, it may be that you need to stop uh, and just tweak a few things. But that short-term loss for the long-term gain of a successful summit day, that's fine. Yeah. And that's the time to have a really good ethos with concurrent activity. So if you and I were heading off together and I'm, I'm doing all these things and I'm like, actually, uh, Chris, I just need to stop for a moment. You can be like, great, fine. Well, I'm not going to waste this prime opportunity to stop because we're not going to stop that much. I'm going to maybe have a wee, have a drink, take a photo, um, eat something, um, you know, 
whatever it might be, there's always something positive you could do and not just stand there. Even if that was to, you know, there's a climber behind you, you could give him some of your sweets, whatever it might be. Yeah. Say hi, say hi to somebody. Um, and, then, and then you're off again. Uh, once you've crossed the autobahn, you join this, this sort of broad ridge and you just sort of meander up that for quite a long time past, past a little weather station. And then it, it starts to ease back. The angle eases back and it opens up. Um, and for many people, that would be a chance to take a sort of a bigger break uh, and to definitely absorb some of the view that's behind you and to your right, which is just amazing. It's huge. And from there, you, you enter this vast open place, which I, I believe is referred to as sort of the football field, which can feel like it goes on for a long time. It's often quite hard to gauge distances when everything's white, um, especially if it was cloudy. But um, it's often hard to gauge time and distance uh, if you've not been there before. Um, but on Denali and some places, we use a technique to to show the way by wanding the route. So we use short bamboo canes to mark the route. Um, and depending on the season and the snowfall, these can be absolutely invaluable to helping you navigate safely and quickly and efficiently. Or if, if it's um, early season, pre sort of big snowy dumps, then there's often quite obvious signs of where people have traveled before because they've compressed the snow time and time again. And then the soft snow gets blown away and actually you get left with this, this really weird sort of raised footpath, which is, very easy to follow obviously yeah, um <laughs> and like all good climbs and good mountains there's always a sting in the tail a little bit and the the true summit of denali you can see it for quite a while so you cross the football field and at this point um it's less arduous so it might be a time where your heart rate and respiration rate can settle a little bit and a chance for you to be able to look whilst walking because often you have to concentrate quite hard on your crampons and and the terrain you're on and where specifically you're putting your feet but this might be a chance for you to sort of you know stand up tall a little bit and um have a look around and then you get to the bottom of pig hill i believe yes pig hill um and you'll often take a good break there you know a good break to have a drink and a bite to eat and restore some of your depleted oxygen stores and, and a bit of psych and a bit of pep talk, if you like. And then it's basically a short, steep slope for 100 metres or so. I, some of these distances might not be exactly on point because um, I don't go up and down a lot. I don't think anyone's <clears> going to be writing in to go, actually, I think you'll find it's 217 metres. <laughs> I think... well, I, I, yeah, yeah. Generally I speaking, yeah. this is... Yeah, it's yeah. a shortish period. So it's a short, steeper slope, and then you yeah. have a sensational uh, erect, a ridge, a snowy, an exposed snowy ridge along to the summit, and it's absolutely fabulous. It's it's a really beautiful way to summit a mountain. Instead of just getting across the snowfield and arriving at the highest point, <clears throat> you join this ridge like a proper, aesthetically pleasing snowy crest. And you meander through that uh, up and up and up to a definitive pointy summit. And it is amazing. Um, and it's usually 
pretty windy and it's usually pretty cold. Um, and it's not a place you can stay for a long time, but if you are blessed with uh, limited wind, then you might well be able to stay a little while and enjoy the conditions. But it's a, it's a very big mountain. It's, it's a huge mass. And from base camp to the summit, you're looking at, uh, well, 4,000 meters, give or take, of gain. Um, it's a long way back down. And, you know, yeah. there's so many famous quotes and uh, about the summit being halfway or, or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, and it is, it is a big mountain and it'll be a long, long summit day. Um, whoever you are it'll be a long summit day Um, and yeah you need to make sure you've got enough reserves to get back down back to high camp and then obviously have a a rest Um, most teams make their way back to high camp and they will be tired and depleted and you really need to stay switched on because the descent isn't risk free you know a a trip and a fall could be catastrophic Um, Whilst generally speaking, the terrain is not too complicated, there is still plenty of terrain that has uh, the potential to be uh, dangerous if you underestimate it um, with a trip or a fall. So, you know, you can't really relax until you come off the end of the autobahn and, and walk back into camp. And I think I think most teams then stay at camp five to rest and recover and hydrate and then descend the next day. Perfect, perfect. Because I was going to ask, the descent is always quicker, uh, even if it is still arduous. Um, I imagine you're frog leaping your way back down so that you can get get all your kit off the mountain too. So the first time I went, uh, I was with my friend Nick, just the two of us. Uh, we were both pretty strong, but this was the biggest thing that either of us had ever done at that point. So yeah. there was a lot of learning and a lot of discussion and decision making and a lot of asking and. Um, but we made some really good decisions and we did have quite a lot of experience before we went, but it was still going to be the biggest thing that we'd either of us had ever done. Um, but we got back to camp five and quickly drank every drop that we'd left for ourselves, (laughs) uh, which was a top tip by somebody on the mountain who told us to do that. And it's a really good thing. I've got a funny story about that actually on yeah. Everest. Um, so we tried, and then we packed up actually, we felt like we had enough energy. We were happy to quickly pack our camp five away, descend the ridge, descend the fixed lines and get down to camp four where we had loads of goodies, loads of food, lots of comforts um, and spend the night at camp four. So that's what we did. We were pretty tired by the time we got to camp four, but we were we were pleased that we'd done that. And then we checked in with the rangers because the National Park has a rangers base at camp four to help facilitate any rescues or any problems on the mountain. And they informed us that um, there was a very big storm coming in in about 24 hours. So our planned leisurely descent of maybe descend from camp four to camp two and then camp two to base camp quickly changed to we need to get to base camp as fast as possible to try and get a plane out before the storm arrives so we woke up very early from camp four and descended the whole way to base camp in which was what at the time the biggest single day i've ever done in my life it was about 18 or 19 hours 
on the back of an 18 hour day the day before. Um, <laughs> but thankfully we had gravity on our side. So we descended from camp four through familiar terrain around the windy corner, down motorcycle hill to camp three, picked up our trash and our um, human waste and, and then back down to camp two, same again, camp one, same again. And, you know, we were really starting to lag by this time. You know, the breaks we were taking were happening more often. They were longer. Yeah. But the weather was fine. And we'd radioed into base camp to let them know we were coming um, and to get our slot, if you like, into the schedule. Um, and we crawled into, oh, I, yeah, I can't forget Heartbreak Hill. So. <laughs> Our sled getting heavier and heavier because on the way up, <laughs> one thing I didn't talk about is every time you get to camp and you're cursing and swearing at how heavy your sled is, you get all your kit out and you're like, right, what do I not need? And then the three pages of your book that you've read, you rip those out and you, you put those in a pile. You cut around everything that you don't, you cut all your labels out. You, you, ref, you do all that and you end up with like 400 grams worth of kit that you don't have to take. So you leave that in your cache at camp one and you pick it up on the way down. And you, somehow when you get to camp two, you have the same process. You get all your kit out again on the way up and you're like, you refine it again. And at camp three again. So, um, yeah, you on the way down, everything's getting heavier. You're getting tired, and we had to get to base camp. So, yeah, the Heartbreak Hill took us. <laughs> when I went again in it, which in the winter, which we'll talk about in a minute, I think yeah. um, we obliterated Heartbreak Hill in under an hour. Um, I think it took Nick and Nick and myself about three hours or so, and we arrived in. Yeah, and it was so hard. I remember, I remember it so clearly because it was the hardest thing I'd done at the time. You know, like leaning on my poles and my head on my hands, uh, just thinking, "Oh my god! Like, is this ever going to end? Like, this is so hard." And I remember, you know, turning around to Nick and me like, "I just don't have any energy. Like, obviously we're going to do it, but I just, I just don't have any energy." But we got into base. It was, remember, it's 24 hour daylight. We arrived into base camp at 4 a.m. in the morning because yeah. we just pushed all the way through uh, and then collapsed basically. I just put my roll mat on the snow, got my sleeping bag out, and, just, <clears throat> and, and, <laughs> and then and then was woken uh, only two and a half, three hours later by the very loud noise of a twin prop plane landing about 100 meters away from where we were sleeping so quickly shot up out the sleeping bag ran over to base camp said hello and then joined the queue and i think at 10 a.m we we flew out okay. and then yeah the next day a storm came in and uh, i believe that for six days nobody was able to get in or out which wasn't a problem it just meant that you you couldn't get in or out so yeah and that's that's epic so before yeah. we move on to describing potentially a more epic scene is there anything else we need to know before getting to those wrap-up questions about Denali um other than what we touched on at the beginning about not underestimating it it's a very physical mountain you need to be really fit um and you need to have really good admin so I wouldn't get on Denali until I thought I was ready. 
Um, but equally, there's a, the first few weeks there is, is a great opportunity for you to learn and to refine and get some systems and things in place. So don't feel like you have to have done heaps and heaps before you get there, but you, you do need to have done some. And it, it, is a, it is a really unrelenting experience as you know, flying on the glacier on day one and you're on the glacier every day. And mentally that can be really challenging. So having a few home comforts like Connect Four um, <laughs> and a good book and these sorts of things, you have to really weigh up the weight that you're carrying. As I touched on just now, you try and cut every single gram versus having a little, a few little things that are just going to make you feel better. Yeah. So on all big expeditions, I would encourage you to have a couple of small things that make you feel better, whether it's like you've got kids and there's one small little teddy or something that um, reminds you of them and family and home. That's great. Like it doesn't weigh very much and it can, you know, it's a really lovely thing, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, get fit. But um, I think regardless if you make the summit or not, if you get on Denali and you endure, endure everything it throws at you and you come out the other end, you know, ha safe and happy, you can plant a little flag in the ground and be happy in the knowledge that you are quite an accomplished uh, winter mountaineer. But, you know, that, that is a real sort of um, flag of acknowledgement, I think. Perfect. Perfect. So you just described something quite epic, which is those two back-to-back -back long days and just collapsing and getting off the mountain, essentially. That was in summer. When yeah. you helped facilitate the Seven Summits world record, you went in winter. <laughs> Without going over everything again, how did the <clears throat> summer compare to the winter for you? And let's talk briefly about the summit as well at some point, too. Sure. Um... How does it, the summer and the winter compare? Well, f firstly, and most obviously, it's substantially colder. And Denali's what temperatures are, very... are we talking on the way up in Celsius? Uh, the temperatures on Denali are quite extreme in summer mm. or winter because of the sun and the strength of the, the sun. And then uh, because of where it is in the world and the altitude and the rest of it, the, the daytime and nighttime temperatures are quite extreme. So in the summer, you could find that a daytime temperature moving at camp three, camp four, you might be down to a single base layer, potentially. Um, you know, a hat, a buff, um, you know, sunglass, single base layer maybe. And then when you stop for a moment, you may just quickly put on a couple of layers or a big warm layer to sort of keep you warm while you stop and then you're off on the move. But if it was windy or uh, snowing, then you might find you had you know, two or three or four layers on. But data, and, and it's quite warm, uh, with nighttime temperatures dropping into the 20s and then potentially at camp four and five, maybe into the minus 30s on a cold night in the summer. I think that would be pretty normal. It's already wind, quite cold. <laughs> it is cold. No, it is cold. Um, definitely, definitely cold. Um, and in winter, everything's much, much colder. We were having minus, low minus 20s, minus 30s from the off at night. 
Um, and uh, on our summit day, whilst I can't um, prove the temperatures, from my experience on the Yukon and in various places, uh, I would say it was getting close to minus 50. It was certainly certainly into the minus 40s and close to minus 50. It was the coldest place I've ever been. And there's a few things that happened that were different to anywhere else I've ever been. So the, the main difference is obviously the temperature. And also one of the reasons why you get cold temperatures is because you do get night and day. You get light and dark in the winter. So we had... Um, Daylight, sunrises, sunsets, and pitch black and nighttime. And everything's a bit more serious when you have pitch black nighttime, which you don't get in the summer. You get 24-hour daylight. So we had, uh, roughly speaking, I think it was 12 and 12, like six or six daylight. Uh, actually, no, maybe more than that. Maybe more like 14 to 15 hours light and the opposite of uh, dark. Um and then, of course, uh, nobody normally climbs it out of season. So from early May to sometime in August, that's the season when up to, roughly speaking, maybe around 1,000 people during that whole period may attempt to climb Denali. Um, and that's it. Like, very few, if any, ever try out of that season. Um, I don't know all the stats, but it's something when we went with Steve to do it in winter, we went to the ranger station in Talkeetna for our briefing. And um, I think they said something along the lines of about seven teams or seven times people only ever people have been in the, in the winter and incredibly unsuccessfully. And if, you know, not only just not reaching the summit, but losing fingers or toes or ears or, you know, hopefully not too often, but maybe members of the team, as well for whatever reason um but it had been done um but it was a, a different ball game altogether because there's nobody on the mountain so it, it's completely blank canvas which is perfect and that was that was exactly what i wanted i don't mind being on mountains where there's other people of course like that's not a problem um and i am part of that problem if you like when i'm guiding on mountains with groups but is something incredibly uh, pure and perfect about being on such a big mountain and being the only people. In fact, we were the only people in the whole national park mountaineering or climbing at that period, not just on Denali. So really remote. And there's also uh, a big factor that we had to um agree to and acknowledge uh outright which was there was no rescue services there was no yeah. mountain rescue available and that's a huge thing to accept that's a you know there are always risks but you know in the alps there's a, an incredible network of mountain rescue available and in the uk as well and you can you can go into the mountains knowing that if you know the worst case scenario happened um they might hopefully be able to come and assist um but we we were made acutely aware that there was no rescue services in place the only way that we could get out was via the same plane that took us in and that was from base camp only so we had to accept that as the higher we went on the mountain in a winter environment we had to accept the magnitude of what it would take to get us 
back to base camp if we had to uh, with a with a casualty. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah, between between the temperatures and um, the severity of it and the increased risk, there's a lot of differences between summer and winter. And because of that as well, do you want to tell us all how how long you spent on the summit in the winter? Um, roughly speaking, about thirty seconds. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but that's that's what you need to do, though. It, it's it's hard. Yeah, we we although there were four of us on this expedition, only two of us, Steve and myself, uh, went for the summit. I'd also like at this point to uh, acknowledge the fact that. Because of a number of factors, um, which we can go into in more detail, we made our summit attempt directly from Camp 4, which is monstrous. That's a big um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the ranger who we spoke to in Talkeetna was amazing and, and incredibly knowledgeable and helpful. And I remember clearly one of his comments just in passing was, Oh, and, you know, don't try and summit from Camp 4. He said every year, you know, some of the world's top alpinists and climbers come to Denali uh, and they climb the West Buttress route to acclimatise for harder objectives that they then plan to go and do. And, you know, they try and go from Camp 4 and they fail all the time. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind. Um, but, yeah, we went from Camp 4 uh, and and had a huge day. But, we, yeah, we, when we when we eventually got to the summit, it was uh, late in the evening and the sun was almost completely set, which is the opposite for what you normally do. You normally try to reach these big summits at sunrise or early in the morning so that when you are physically at the most extreme and you're at the highest point of the day, um, the day is getting warmer and longer. The light is getting longer and, you know, the temperature is getting warmer and that sort of thing. Whereas we'd had to, because of the weather window that we were forced into, we left in the morning and we summited at about half past 10 at night at the very, very last glow of, of the sunset. And at the coldest point and the temperatures were only going to get colder. Um, so, yeah, you know, as we reached the summit, we we're both completely aware that um, we had a maximum of about a minute to to do anything on the summit before we had to start descending. I tried to take a photo with my camera, but that had already sort of frozen and given up the ghost. Uh, thankfully, Steve's phone, which seemed to be incredible. I mean, put Apple to shame. I think it was. <laughs> um, he, I quickly got that from him. And before the cold had time to penetrate the phone that had had previously been kept like deep in a pocket inside his his down suit, <clears throat> um, got a few snaps of him, and then yeah, his phone also <coughs> excuse me, his phone also uh, succumbed to the cold. Um, yeah, I noticed on a video I saw of the seven summits that there was there was kind of a picture taken on the summit, and then there's another one taken with his flag. Um, a bit further down, we're denying the background. I noticed. Yeah. yeah, we didn't have time to do any of his uh, PRE marketing stuff that we'd managed to achieve on the other summits. You know, he had a couple of flags that we had previously done. Uh, he had a, a really special bottle of whiskey that he'd been carrying to each of the summits, which he did carry to the summit in his bag, uh, but we didn't get it out. 
Um, uh, and yeah, and a, you know, a few particular videos that we tried to get on other summits where he thanked uh, a few people. But no, this was literally um, a okay. quick summit photo and then, you know, let, let's get down safely sort of thing. Because we've really, although I, although I uh, and Steve acceptingly were completely happy with the situation we were in, um, we were absolutely aware of the severity or the potential severity of the situation we were in also in. It had the potential to go extremely wrong very quickly, but it didn't have to as long as we stayed on the ball and, and sort of kept our wits about us and got on with it. Perfect. I was going to talk about downtime, but I realised time's, time's ticking on this podcast and we actually spoke about it uh, to some degree in the main interview, so, which if you haven't listened to, I recommend you go back and uh, and give it a go. We, we go over quite a few interesting topics. But cards, I, I guess, is, a, is the short answer. Cards and Connect 4 take up a lot of downtime. And you mentioned ripping pages out of books, so I imagine they keep your company a little bit. But um, I wanted to also speak just quickly about altitude. So just for anyone who doesn't know, other than like the worst migraine you've ever had in your life in some severe cases, what symptoms are we looking out for of altitude on our way up? And the reason I ask is because I think the unknown can scare a lot of people. But if you know uh, whether it be Denali or a small mountain you're about to take after this podcast, <laughs> um, um, it's good to know what you're looking out for so that you know what it is. Yeah, great question. Um, well, Altitude sickness is generally split into two parts. AMS, which is acute mountain sickness, which many of your listeners, if they've been to anywhere at altitude like Kilimanjaro or a trek anywhere at altitude, have probably felt or experienced some of the uh, acute mountain sickness symptoms like a headache, shortness of breath, perhaps nausea, uh, loss of appetite, um interrupted sleep those sorts of things that um individually don't seem too serious but are very much sort of early signs that your body is at altitude and is trying its best to adjust uh to it but isn't quite there yet if that makes sense um and hopefully with a little bit of time those sorts of symptoms will subside and pass um Maybe you're a bit dehydrated or you've had too much sun or you've just uh, ascended a little bit quick and you could do with perhaps either stopping at the altitude or descending a little bit for a day or two before going back up. So acute mountain sickness is quite common. And, you know, most of my clients on Kilimanjaro would would certainly feel some some of those at some point during the trip. You know, headaches are really common. They're almost... Well, they're the most common thing that people feel at altitude, but a bit of additional lethargy or loss of appetite, they're all really common. Uh, if you start collecting them all, then you may wish to consider uh, some more proactive action like descending or certainly resting and seeing if they get worse or improving, but they shouldn't be ignored. All these are signs. They're all little red flags saying, something's not quite right um let's see if we can make it right if, if you're with me yeah. um and then so that that sort of acute mountain sickness and then the other half is a bit more serious so um so the high altitude sickness which is again split into two so you've got higher altitude 
pulmonary edema or high altitude cerebral edema, hape and haste. So one one is um, sort of fluid buildup on your lungs, sort of pulmonary edema. And the other is uh, a fluid buildup on your brain, cerebral edema. And both are, if left untreated, uh, very serious. And if completely untreated and you carry on, can result in um, sort of passing out into a coma and then sort of dying. Um, but the good news is they're also both quite equally managed and treated with dissent um is the first of all these things is to descend and by descending you increase the oxygen so if you have oxygen available then that is really vital um and then there is some medicines which i won't get into but um that anybody goes out to should know about there's not many and perhaps have access to in some way but they can be vital in helping people improve with descent and with oxygen so um you know for hape and haste so pulmonary edema you would feel that your heart rate and respiration rate were increased um to to some degree either a bit or a lot and they didn't want to settle so often when you're altitude, yeah, of course, your heart rate and respiration rate increases because you're exerting physically. But when you stop, you will always or you should always recover reasonably quickly. It might take 30 seconds or a minute, but your heart rate and respiration rate will drop and you'll feel relatively normal again whilst you're stood still or sitting around. But with those developing pulmonary edema, that won't be the case. Their respiration rate or their heart rate will maintain high. And even though they're not doing anything and further down the line, you will you would actually be able to feel and and hear a sort of gargling on the lungs, like the, the water, the fluid uh, plasma in the lungs. You'd be able to hear that. And if that individual were to lie down, they might well uh, get the feeling of sort of drowning. Um, so it's really important that they stay sat up. Um, but most important that they begin descent and uh, oxygen if you've got it and you know if you can get medical services get those but there are signs and symptoms you know shortness of breath you know it doesn't just suddenly fill your lungs and that's it you know there would be signs and symptoms through AMS that you would see and then a development of a shortness of breath and increased uh, or a, slow, a slower ability to recover when you stop and have a rest. Um, and with cerebral edema, yeah, you're looking at a cross between like the world's worst headache, like your head in a vice, someone cranking the vice, and being distinctly drunk. So very similar symptoms to meeting somebody in the street who's had a bit too much to drink. So um, coordination, is often a giveaway because you know in these environments you might have hoods on and goggles on and all the rest of it and it's difficult to see people's faces and glean sort of that sort of emotion from somebody yeah. but staggering or tripping you know you might suddenly alert yourself that somebody in front of you or even yourself if you acknowledge that you wouldn't normally trip or stagger on this sort of terrain like your coordination is is impaired um and then of classic things like irrational behavior, getting snappy or short or slurring your words so that you don't quite make sense. 
are all classic signs that um, cerebral edema is, is definitely taking on. But the headache is going to be excruciating. Yeah. Um, and again, if untreated and, um, and nothing happened, this can be really severe, really severe, um, just like pulmonary edema. But equally, again, with the scent and oxygen and the right medication, it, it should and it normally clears pretty quickly. Um, yeah, a quick overview. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's worth mentioning as well, uh, to the listeners, um, uh, John actually runs his own company, Mountain Expeditions which uh, I'll put a link in the description. And uh, I, I'm guessing it's regular. I'm actually signed on to it uh, tomorrow at the newbie level, but you actually run seminars and skill seminars such as that, such as Altitude. So if anyone is interested in learning more uh, than like I am, then by all means, that's a, a free plug for you, John. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks by all means, hop, hop over because it's, it's well worth your time. Um, I, I'm doing Mount Tubkul uh, in December uh, and that's going to be the highest I've ever gone. Uh, before that, I'm doing Mount Triglav in in September. That's going to be the highest I've ever gone before <laughs> that. So oh, yeah. it's actually interesting for me to know, and it's going to be good to test for me anyway. Right. So. Absolutely. Um, you know, during this lockdown from the coronavirus that we are currently in while we're doing this podcast, yeah. um, it's, it's given me the time and the opportunity to put together these, as, as you said, these three, these masterclasses for newbies going to altitude and for folk who have done a bit of altitude but considering going higher or just fancy learning a few extra top tips and from my experience so um yeah they're online and and i'm looking forward to tuesday and and telling you more about this wonderful world yeah so am i, yeah. so am I. um and then last question and i'm going to be quite specific with this one so in the main okay. interview i said that i ask everyone this uh this episode is no different which is of all of your both your times climbing Denali, what's the one moment that you would like to relive? Now, I asked you the same question about your blimmin' career in the last podcast, <laughs> and your answer yeah. was on this mountain. So, without giving that answer, which I will leave the listeners to go back and listen to if they haven't done already, if yeah. you could relive one moment on the mountain, both from your summer and your winter experiences, what would that be? Um. I remember a moment from the first one uh, quite well. We'd obviously summited and in good time. I think it was day 12. Um, and we, as, as I explained, we got that camp four and then decided we were going to have to push all the way to base camp in a day. And I think it was somewhere around between camp two and camp one where the terrain is reasonably easy. It's quite low angled. and all the technicalities, all the objective dangers, anything serious was behind us. Uh, and it was, the, it was getting on to about midnight, I think, and it, uh, it was still completely light. And it was just the two of us traveling at that point. So you could see a camp uh, way down in the distance where we were heading to, but we were the only people traveling. And I, I think that was the first time... Um, during that well that was the first time during that trip that I'd allow what we'd achieved to start sinking in so I, I need to get often it's not until you know I'm back on tarmac is sometimes what I say but this this was already sort of 24 hours later and I felt like we were out of harm's way and and I was happy to allow myself to sort of review and 
consider what we'd just done and to sort of enjoy that moment. And I, uh, Nick was ahead, um, so I didn't even have to think about sort of navigating where we're going. And I, I had music on, I believe, at that time I was listening to some Bon Iver, which is pretty chill. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it was just the start of a starting to be a bit reflective on what we just achieved. And as I said, at the time, um, it was the biggest thing I'd ever done, for sure. Um, and I was really proud of Nick and, and, and what, we, what we'd achieved together and the decisions we'd made and the results that we'd got. So, yeah, that moment was really special, sort of adding all those together, some, maybe the onset of a little bit of melancholy sort of post-exhibition review, post-exhibition blues starting to ease their way in. But, um, yeah, that was... And it's like, yeah, midnight and it's still light. It's, I don't yeah. think I've experienced that either. Kind of magical. Yeah. In, really, in, like, in a very scientific way. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't too cold. Um, it was quite pleasant. Uh, and it just felt like a, a really fitting sort of end full circle to that that journey as we then approached the heartbreak hill and yeah. <laughs> back to base camp yeah it was pretty special yeah well listen john thank you so much for coming on to the podcast again i really really appreciate Pleasure. it and uh hopefully we'll see you in another one soon yeah i hope so it'd be great thanks very much cheers super fascinating podcast i really really enjoyed that one if you enjoyed it too then please do consider hitting the subscribe or follow button depending on where you're listening to this feel free to share it with a friend that you think will appreciate this podcast too and if you want to come onto the podcast give me an email on btmtravelpod at gmail.com we cover everything from backpacking to expeditions so be sure to get in touch and follow us on instagram twitter facebook at btm travel pod and otherwise have a great weekend